Hello, everyone. Welcome to another edition of Let's Run.com's Track Talk Podcast. We've got so much to talk about this week. The Diamond League is back, and Shawnee Miller Weibo's unbeaten streak has continued. It is now over two years long. An American man has won the Falmouth Road Race for the first time since 1988. Nike says it won't reduce women's sponsorship contracts for 18 months while they're pregnant and giving birth. And just in, the Kenyan men's 10,000 and women's 10,000 meter trials are in the books. This is Let's Run.com co-founder Robert Johnson. Welcome you to the show. My twin brother is on vacation this week, but I am joined as always by our A staff writer, the man who goes to Amsterdam and has a McFlurry, Jonathan Galt. Good to be here, Robert. And uh, I hope that you can make it through this whole podcast without falling asleep. You said you're on your third Coke and it's already... It's only 9.41 in the morning and you're already three Cokes in, which I think might be necessary. Robert's been feeling a little under the weather recently, people. He's been taking a lot of naps. Getting sick in the summer sucks. Uh, no one likes that. So, Robert, uh, you seem peppy. Uh, you seem energized. I think we're going to make it through the whole podcast in one piece. Thank you. For the record, it's true. Not that they're a sponsor of the program, but these are these are Dr. Peppers. And they're very small. They're 7.5 fluid ounces each, so... Really probably only the equivalent of two Dr. Peppers. This week's podcast is brought to you by the Let's Run.com shoes site. Go to letsrun.com slash shoes and get your new shoes. Folks, the shoe companies have created a racket. They have created a product that self-destructs basically every three months if you're high mile or high mileage, one month, three months if you're running a moderate amount of mileage, every six months if you don't run that much. But you need new shoes all the time. They're pretty expensive. But if you go to the let's run.com shoes shoe site there, you can find the cheapest place to find your, the shoe that you love. Or if you don't have a shoe that you love, you can find thousands of shoe reviews. Find the best shoe for you for the type of runner you are. And then you can save money when it's time to come purchase it. Go to letsrun.com slash shoes. John, what, what did you think of my introduction of you? I was thinking about introducing you as a doping apologist, but decided to go with a McFlurry reference from last week's podcast. I, I think the callback was great. Our devoted listeners, hopefully they caught that one. But uh, doping apologist, I mean, I would say... Read the article. I just wrote a lengthy article about Jerry and Lawson, the American long jumper. It's on letsrun.com right now. Uh, it's an interesting case. He's been banned for the presence of epitrembolone, which he says stems from contaminated beef that he ate at a Japanese restaurant last year. The Athletics Integrity Unit says that he hasn't proved that. So currently he's banned for four years. He's appealing to the Court of Arbitration for Sport. There's a lot that goes into it. It's interesting to me because RJ Wilson and Will Clay, two of the top Americans in their events, both said they both failed drug tests in 2017 and 2018. And they said that they were innocent. They said it was contaminated meat. And they were cleared by USADA. But USADA doesn't have the authority in Lawson's case. It's the AIU that has the authority. And they say he hasn't proved that it's probable where the source of the contamination was. And so he's currently banned. So it's a very complex issue. I would say if you want to call me a doping apologist, at least read the article first. I know you've read the article, Robert. Uh, at least I, you told me you did. Oh, definitely read it. And I'm really into it. And um, I mean, I feel like he faced an impossible task. There's no way to prove that the specific teriyaki bowl he had, you know, back in June of, what was it, two years ago? June 2018. You know, um, it came from contaminated base. The, the biggest difference between the other cases is he didn't hadn't taken a, a drug test a few days before that showed that he had nothing in his system. And secondly, 
this just theoretically this the substance he tested positive shouldn't show up in the beef if if the cattle are being injected properly with the steroids. Um, whereas in I think Wilson's case, it is something that could kind of cross contaminate the beef a little bit more. So there's definitely some differences there. Um, and also, you know, who's in charge? You know, a skeptic might say, well, yeah, USAD, USA anti-doping just lets the Americans off. Um, you know, and uh, the message board discussion on, on this case has been interesting to me. It's like people are like, well, why don't we have these, these cases all the time? And I got on there and was like, well, we may not just because the testing is getting so much more better. I, I, I mean, so much more better, getting so much better. Um, you know, it, it just it can recognize now a tiny amount. So. You know, I just said it's not that common. Like, let's just say that one in a hundred restaurants has this contamination in it, and then you have to be tested the day after you eat there. So, one in a hundred times one in a hundred is like one in ten thousand. And then someone made a good point. They're like, "Well, then what are the odds of that? Like, three American stars all test positive for contaminated beef? You know, A.G. Wilson, Will Clay, and, and Jerry Lawson. So it is kind of an interesting thing. John, let's don't talk about it too long. But if I if I put not very PC, if I put a gun to your head and said clean or dirty. Which one are you going with? I would say clean uh, in the case of Jerry and Lawson. I think you nailed it, Robert. It's essentially he faces a very, very high standard of proof. And they say it only has to be greater than 50% likely, but that's still very high to clear when you can't get the evidence that this meat was contaminated. And to me, the way, the, my biggest takeaway from this is if the AIU is going to accept that meat contamination is possible it needs to make it easier on the athletes to prove that in the, because if you're saying it's this scenario is impossible meat contamination is not possible at all fine keep the burden of high, proof very high but i don't i don't think that's necessarily fair because i do think it can happen it's happened in other sports other athletes have been cleared for it in other sports so i think it just needs to be a little easier for him to prove his innocence if he is indeed innocent Folks, I was thinking about this. What we need, people say, why don't we see these all the time? You know, how how common is this? What we need is a sponsor. I would like to take a drug test every day for the next year. And I eat my very unhealthy diet that has a lot of meat in it. McDonald's, hamburgers, the local Pepe's cheesesteak. You know, this isn't high-grade beef that I'm eating, I don't think. Um, So I'll take a drug test every day for a year. And we'll see if I test positive for anything because I'm definitely we can maybe we can show insiders the video of how I look right now in this podcast. I'm not a, a specimen of athletic excellence right oh, now. Oh, Robert, you look great. You're wearing your Tom Brady goat jersey. You have a nice new haircut. You look fantastic. Thank you. But um, you know, I figured that'd be kind of expensive. I was wondering how much one of these drug tests cost. Probably like a hundred, hundred fifty dollars each. I have no idea. Let's say it's hundred fifty dollars times three hundred and sixty-five. Probably about 50 grand or something. It's kind of expensive, so I don't want to do that on myself. So if you want to sponsor this or USADA, if you want to just test me, I'll be happy to do it every day. Or John, just kind of doing the math roughly, we could fire you and test myself. Uh, Yeah, let's move on to the Diamond League track action in Birmingham last weekend. You mentioned Robert Shawnee Miller-Webo. I mean, let's be honest. Looking at some of these races, most of these fields were not that great. I think... Part of the reason is the ath- many of the athletes have already qualified for the Diamond League Finals, and they don't want to come over for this meet in Birmingham and then, you know, stay in Europe for another ten days or so until they wait until the finals begin. We have Zurich on August 29th, and then Brussels on September 6th. I think the ones who already secured their places decided 
hey, I'm just going to sit it out. I'll come back for the final. Uh, but the women's 200 was legitimately a really great field. You had Shawnee Miller-Webo. She came on pretty late to win that race, but she won it over home favorite Dina Asher-Smith of Great Britain. And, you know, you had Shelly Ann Fraser-Price in that field as well. You had the two-time defending world champion Daphne Skippers in that field. Blessing Okigbare, who won in Stanford. The U.S. champ Des Bri- Des- Desiree Bryant, sorry, Des Bryant, uh, wide receiver for the Cowboys, or was a wide receiver for the Cowboys. Uh, so that was really a great race. But then Milwebo said after the race that she's not running the 200 at Worlds because the double, the schedule is just not possible. The double's not possible. And she also told the British media she had put in a request to change the schedule for Doha and you know the IAAF ignored it. And then the IAAF, I tweeted this out I, based on what the British newspapers reported, then the IAAF actually reached out to me and said, that's not true. They never received a request from Shawnee Miller or her management to change the schedule for Doha 2019. And... That's why it hasn't been changed. And essentially, there's a lot more that goes into making the schedule than just, you know, figuring out the doubles. Breaking news from Jonathan Galt, an exclusive there. John, you got to hype up your news. Like, that's a big story. Like, I, I was probably going to rip the IAAF for not making the double possible. And yet, in reality, she didn't ask for the double to be changed and even the schedule to be changed. And it, it was interesting. I was, I went back, um, you know, and, and she did do the double two years ago and sort of failed. I wouldn't say failed spectacularly, but didn't do very well. She got what third in the 200 and, and, and sort of failed to medal in the 400 was the medal was the 400 when she was ahead and had it won and then totally slowed up in the last. Yeah. Yeah. So what happened in that race is she had a big lead. She got out very hard and then she sort of looked up at the scoreboard. And I think she was, it was a combination of looking up and just being exhausted that, her form just totally broke down and she got steamed by the, all the medalists blew by her. So she just really totally blew, blew that by going out too hard, I think. And then the, the 200, she got the bronze behind skippers and Marie Jose Talu. So, but she did win the diamond league in the, both those events in 2017. So you would yeah, think after that, yeah, after, after the worlds in a one day, an event though, it's so much easier, you know, I mean, absolutely. Do, so she, she was clearly the best. She won the 200 after Worlds. And then her actual, her last loss was yesterday, two years ago yesterday, August 20th, in the Birmingham Diamond League. She ran the 100 meters, which, she, you know, not a surprise that she lost there. And she hasn't lost in two years since. But, you know, she probably should have gotten the bronze in the 200 and the first in the 400. But, um, you know, I was looking at the schedule two years ago. She had to run basically every day because – the the 400 was on the 6th, 7th, and 9th of August, and the 200 was on the 8th, 10th, and 11th. So there was no day that she had to run two events, but, you know, that's a lot of, that's basically 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11. That's six days in a row you're running something. So that that's quite a lot. That, you know, it could be spread out more if you started it at the beginning of the Worlds and put it at the end. The problem with that this year would be the mixed gender 4x4. So, um you know, they probably want to push things farther back from that this year. So they're going to put the mixture in a 4x4 at the beginning. And that, so that's why there's the overlap this year. Yeah, yet another reason why I hate the mixed gender 4x4. But it's interesting. The IAAF, I, I asked them, you know, why is the 200-400, why, why wasn't it possible from the beginning? Why is the women's 1500 5K 
double not possible. And essentially their response was, look, it's more complicated than just making sure all the doubles are doable. You know, the schedule has to go through, here's who it has needs to be approved by, the local organizing committee, broadcast, the IAAF athletes, coaches, competition and medical commissions, as well as the IAAF executive board and council. And then they also brought up that there are a few things that you don't really think of, like the stadium configuration, where are the field events going to be going on at certain times, especially with the long throws, like the hammer and the javelin. You know, some of those events you don't want going on at the same time as a track event because there's a possibility for danger, uh, either or the run-up has to go onto the track or the landing area could, you know, bounce to the side or something and land on the track so they don't want to run some events in it. So... I will admit it's probably more difficult to plan the schedule than I originally just thought, hey, switch them, put everything, at the st- some things at the start, some things at the end. But I do think for some of these races, they can do a better job. And you need to know, like going into Tokyo, I think they, I don't think it's the 200, 400 doubles possible. And you, you need to make it possible for Shawnee Miller-Weebo. I 100% agree on that one with her because she's so good. I mean, I, I think this week, this race from last week shows she's definitely more vulnerable in the 200, which we kind of knew all along. I mean, she was behind, but but got in the end, you know, came through through with the victory. Um, you know, one thing, John, they do. I, I one of the reasons why this schedule is just not as easy as putting at the beginning and the end is they want to have finals in the middle of the week. I mean, you don't want to just have nothing going on. So, you know, one thing I was thinking in the middle of the week, like who who doesn't ever double? Well, the hurdlers never double, pretty much. Mm-hmm. Um, put the 100, 110 hurdles, 400 hurdles. The steeplechasers never do anything else. Um, not that many people really do the eight. Well, I guess McCloofy. But the 815 has become quite rare these days. Yeah. So, anyways, hopefully the schedule gets better in the future. But in terms of the other, you know, the non sprint action in the Diamond League, I mean, we had three Diamond League races all on the women's side the 800 where A.G. Wilson got the win, the mile where Coco got the win, and... We had the steeplechase. Beatrice Kepchepkowicz just held on for the victory there. Yeah, so in my recap of the race, I basically said, said like, look, these races went very much according to form. I mean, they weren't that deep. I would say, argue that the heavy favorite won all three races in in every case. I mean, I, I know you thought Coco might be a little vulnerable, but I don't know why. What because Gabriella Stafford ran four seventeen earlier this year in the mile. Like that's really, really good. She's been competitive in all the Diamond Leagues and she was the only one who stuck with Coco, but I don't think that was a I don't I wouldn't call Coco a, a heavy favorite in the mile. I would have called Wilson and Chep Coach heavy favorites in the other two events. Right. Okay. Fair enough. I mean I I, I you thought Dubu Stafford might win. I think you actually picked her to win. She, I did. she was close enough that till the final, basically 150, that it, it well, could have happened. Essentially, I made the point like, Coco, she's going to beat her. She needs to run away from her. And she absolutely did that. She set the pace from, you know, from the early stages of the race. It wasn't, you know, 421. It's not as fast as what the Monaco race was, but it's pretty fast. And Coco made it hurt early. And. She was able to, you know, break Stafford late and and go for the win. So very impressive run by her in windy conditions, uh, no less, and a first diamond league win for the young German NOP runner. 
Yep, and new national record of 421.11 in the mile. Now, I didn't put in the article whose mile record she broke. It was her own record, so not that, you know, it's exciting when you break your own record. Uh, <coughs> but not a good day. We talked last in last week's podcast about how some Americans got into this field that normally would not get into it. Uh, Eleanor Perrier got in there, uh, Helen Schlachtenhofen, the Dartmouth alum, um, and Heather McLean. And, and, and really, I would say disappointing, in my opinion, for all three. I know the weather wasn't good, but 430, 431, and 435, like the, you know, take 20 seconds off, and you're only running the equivalent of 410, 411, and 415. Yeah, I mean, you know, in a race where the winning time's 421, and you don't have, you have three Americans in the field, and none of them break 430, yeah, it's, it's not a good showing. Another woman who didn't run very well, who I was surprised by, is, is Kate Grace, the 800. She was only 7th in 203.19. Now, granted, the winning time, again, it was windy. The winning time was only 2 flat 76. But you had RJ Wilson and Raven Rogers going 1-3 in that race. And Grace was just never really in contention, didn't look good. She she will run again in the 800 in Paris this weekend. So maybe she'll do better. But that wasn't a great great run for her. Really terrible for Grace. She actually put something up on Instagram, which is sort of like... Just said it. I mean, she fessed up to it. Like, this was not good. She's like, you know, the conditions weren't good, but that doesn't explain for me finishing so far back, um, you know, in, in the field. And I, I said afterwards, to me, it's really important that she figures out what she wants to do. I'm glad that she's running 800 this weekend. She needs to have no doubt as to where she's going next year, 8 or 15, and go all in on that. You know, I, I guess the double at the uh, trials is probably easier at the U.S. trials. So she could probably do both as a backup to try to make the team. But uh, oh, the Brenda Martinez, yes, that's what happened in 2016. So, um, you know, but seventh place w- w- was not, you know, I- impressive there. Um, but there was no Americans in the women's steeplechase. I don't believe, right, John? Is that correct, or did we have someone? Fin- no, Mel Lawrence ran the steeplechase. Uh, obviously, she's not one of the very elite Americans, and. She didn't have a great race. She was 14th and 9.53. But, you know, the other ones, Courtney Frerichs and Emma Coburn, they're both in the final. So they decided not to run. And again, I get that. Colleen Quigley, I was a little curious why she didn't run because she is not going to be in the final, most likely, unless some people scratch. You know, why not go over there and try and get some points? What else, I guess, what else are you peaking for this year? You know, USA's... Oh, I guess she has the world championships. Sorry, so... That does make sense, but uh, you know she needs to race between now and then. Yeah, what else, John? Just just the world championship. <laughs> I forgot about that. I forgot she made the team. I don't know why. Uh-huh. Yeah. Rare mistake by John, folks. Mark it down, August twenty first, two thousand nineteen. Um, but so no big name Americans in this field. But I thought this race was a fantastic race for the big Americans, the Emma Coburns of the world, the Courtney Firexes of the world. Because to me, Beatrice Chipkowicz. Looked a little bit vulnerable over that last half lap there. You know, if you weren't watching it, she got basically like, what, a four-second lead, you know, heading into like basically the 2K mark and and had a big lead heading into the bell lap. Looked very relaxed, you know, on the last lap of commentators. Look how smooth Chuck Coach looks. And I agree, but um, her last water jump just was far from impressive. And Coburn is such a good water, you know, she's such a good hurdler. So I'm thinking if this is close, you know, Chep Coach just kind of just falls off the, she doesn't really push off the, uh, she doesn't use the the barrier to like get gain momentum. She just wants to sort of not lose momentum. And, you know, there was like four or five women battling it out for second behind her. And obviously when they're kicking it in against each other, they're getting closer. And 
coming into the last barrier, she probably realized that. So she did really, she stuttered her steps a ton. Now, maybe that was just to make sure because she realized like, hey, if I'm not, if I don't fall, I'm still going to win. But they ended up getting, you know, within one second of her. So I know it was still 9.05, which is a decent time. It was actually a meet record. The conditions weren't good. But, you know, she didn't cruise in and, and, and keep that four-second lead. She just barely main, maintained. Yeah, I mean, her, you said it, Robert. Her final wood, uh, sorry, her final barrier on the home straight was really bad. I mean, she must have lost, I would say, a second or something on that alone just by stuttering it. And I think you nailed it in your recap. You said if Chep Coet shows up in sub-855 shape, no one's beating her. If she's only in nine flat shape or nine oh five shape, she's beatable. I, I know the Americans can run those times because we've seen Courtney Ferrix's run nine flat and Coburn's run nine oh two. And I think if Courtney Ferrix and Emma Coburn were in that race in Birmingham, I'm not saying they would have beaten her, but I think they could have been right there. You know, that, that's certainly a race that they could have won. So, you know, I know that Jerry's very good at peaking his athletes' for worlds. I'm sure Ferrix will be in the shape in the best shape of the season and Coburn's basically gets in like 905 shape and keeps it around that all year she's been in you know the mid 90s so i think it, yeah absolutely a good sign for the americans heading into worlds next month yeah i mean this race had three of the four fastest women in the world with Coburn being the, being the one person that wasn't there and none of them run faster than 905 um the one negative for the americans about, about getting the peak right is is the runner-up was Cellophane Chesspole. She she had only run 9.11 on the year. She won that battle for seconds. She run 9.06. So it does look like she's getting her peak maybe correct. You know, she's the third fastest woman in history at 8.58. So she could end up, you know, if Chip Kowicz isn't there, maybe Chesspole wins the gold. So it should be a, a really, you know, interesting um, world championship for sure. And I guess we'll get a mini preview of that in the Diamond You know, it's kind of interesting. We're going to have a mini preview in, in the Diamond League stuff. And then we'll still have three or four weeks until Worlds. So, you know, should be uh, fascinating on that front. And, you know, there was a couple men's non-Diamond League races in Birmingham. Um, The 1500 for the men, American Craig Ingalls was in it. And, you know, in the preview, you talked about how he needed to be able to contend for the win in that type of field if he wants to medal at Worlds. And, you know, while he didn't win, I think he was, what, third place? He was third. It was very close. Yeah, yeah. The other thing, Ronald Musagala of Uganda got the win. Stuart McSwain of Australia, who's having another great year, uh, got second in 335.21. And then Engels was third in 335.51. Musagala was 335.12 for the win. So Engels was right there. And I was at Falmouth Road Race over the weekend, so I didn't watch the race live. But I was talking to Matt Sonnenfeld, who is um, works with Ray Flynn, which is Craig Engels' agency. And he said he was watching the race on his phone. And he was telling me about it. He's like, yeah, Craig ran tactically well. You know, he put himself in good position. He just didn't quite have it at the very end. But he was telling me, like, I, it wasn't an easy trip over to Birmingham for this race. Like, he was saying Engels was having trouble sleeping. He was still, like, jet lagged. And so he was up at, like, midnight the night before the race, like, texting Matt and telling him, like, I can't sleep, man. And then Matt's like, dude, go to bed. Like, you have a race tomorrow. He's just like, couldn't say he couldn't fall asleep. It's always can be tough for some athletes. Their first European race after a long trip from the US, they're not always sharp. So I think all things considered to run 335 in windy conditions was pretty good run for Craig and uh, certainly a pretty good sign. He won't be running the Diamond League. He probably, Diamond League final 
it depends. He needs he needs a few breaks to go his way in terms of people not passing him, someone scratching, but he won't be running in Paris this weekend because he's the best man in a wedding back in the U.S. Again, Jonathan Galt does not do a good job of breaking a Let's Run exclusive. The final Diamond League qualifier for, for the final is this weekend in Paris. Ingles could run and pick up points to solidify his spot in the final, but he's skipping it, folks, to go to a wedding. So this is a guy, John, let's talk about his social life. He's been going to the beach with... <laughs> Shelby Houlihan. Lake. Lake. Not a beach. Well, there might be a beach on the lake. He's been going to the lake with Shelby Houlihan after USA's. Act like he was chilling, but then he, he showed up in Birmingham and ran really well. And now he's going to a wedding. Um, You know, I don't remember Galen Rupp doing stuff like this. He's sort of following the Tony Romo method of, you know, hey, big meat and then Cancun or Cabo or whatever it was. So. No, I mean, I... Look, I don't blame the guy. He's honoring a commitment. He's the best man of this wedding. I mean... I don't blame the guy. I blame the guy getting married. Actually, he's probably not in charge, though, because the woman's probably picking the date. But, dude, if, if it's the best man, you got to... And he's a professional track athlete. You got to kind of have to realize, like, we can't get married during the season. Like, that's not going to work. And I would like to apologize to my 339 college roommate scott anderson i had to skip his wedding i was invited to be in the wedding party but when i was coaching at cornell i'm like dude i'm not skipping the meet to, to to um you know a fairly big meet to go to your wedding now actually now that i'm a little bit older i probably would have so i'm glad that craig's friends mean that much to him that he is going to it but i kind of i don't know diamond league final you're going to miss out on it because you had to go to a wedding he's not missing worlds I and mean, look is he going to win the diamond league final no but he needs to get the olympic standard john that's one small that's, that's one small point. one small thing you don't want to be chasing it next year. You know, he's clearly in like at least 320, 32 shape, I would say. You know, so 335 is not going to be an issue. So, and it was windy. So, he, folks, he ran 335 in Europe. I mean, in Birmingham last week. Birmingham. But, um, you know, the weather, it was windy, so it didn't run really well. I mean, it didn't run really fast. Yeah. No, the, you, the wedding thing, though, Robert, you know, you're making my th- me think. One of my best friends from high school just got engaged. And you know he's. Pro- I'm assuming he's going to get married next summer. And I'm like, I really just don't get married the week of the Olympics. I know that's selfish, but like, don't make me choose between those two because. I, or the, uh, you need you need to send them the trials too, John. Yeah, yeah. They no, the trial. I don't want to miss the trials, but uh, I feel like it. Yeah, like he's a really good weekends. friend of mine. We'll let you miss one weekend of the... Tr- of yeah, the- that's what... Well, let's hope I don't have to miss any, but I, yeah, he's a really yeah. good friend of mine. So We'll be happy to have you miss out on the Olympics because I think we have two Olympic press passes, so Weldon and I can go. And- yeah, I don't think I'm missing the Olympics. I don't think that's going to happen. Well, we can be the face of Let'sRun.com. Although, with our two passes, I was thinking about this. I think Weldon thinks perhaps we can you know, get an extra one because last time we had three, although I didn't show, I was afraid of Zika. I was going to start a family. But um, well, I wonder if IWF people are listening, security. So, John, we get two press passes. <laughs> we, we, we put one in my name and one in your names. And then Weldon and I just, You guys share it because you're twins? Yeah. Like, how good is the biometric data of, you know? Yeah, well, it's, it's interesting, though. I wonder, because we asked for three last year and or last time and you didn't show up, are they going to say, hey, we gave you three and you only used two, you know? You only get two this time. But I contacted them to let them know to give it back to somebody. Anyways. So, there was also an 800, which Mark, where Mark English, who'd been running, he DNF'd in a race a few days before, ended up coming from nowhere to win, which was kind of interesting to see Tim Hutchings get the call wrong. But uh, 
anyways, one thing I was thinking about in those races was, you know, there's really, particularly on the men's side, like the favorites all won in Birmingham for the women. You know, the men's races, it was kind of hard to predict who was going to win those races. I know they weren't real high quality. But I started thinking about worlds, and I'm like, if you think about the World Championships mid-D and distance events, there's really no big favorites at all for worlds. Let's go event by event. I think no big favorites at all is a little misleading. but It's going to be such an exciting world. Now, we're going to get a preview at the Diamond League Finals, but it's not like recent years where Mo Farah, come on, everyone thought he would win the 5 and the 10. Now, he didn't always do it, but he normally came close to it. Um, you know, you had, back in the day when you had like a Rudisha or something like that, you knew that he would win the 800, or you really thought he would. But men's 800. Now, Nigel Amos has been incredible this year. But, John, are you feeling really that confident in him? He got injured at the London Diamond League. And given the fact that in the 2015, 2016, and 2017 Worlds, or global, you know, world slash Olympics, he only made one final of those three. And he didn't even, I don't think, ran the 2013 Worlds. He was out that year. So, I mean, are you calling him the big favorite? And if not, who's the big favorite in the 800? Uh, I mean... I have to see him run the Diamond League final and how he does there. I think I, at this point, I'm certainly not calling him big favorite. I think you would call him the favorite. But again, he hasn't run since he hobbled off the track in London a month ago. And so where is he health wise? And his, yeah, his championship struggles. I know now, look, he did run 141 to take the Olympic silver medal in 2012. It's not like he's never made the final. He made the final in 2017. He didn't run well. But yes, his championship struggles have been real recently. So no, I don't think you can call him the big favorite. He's probably my slight favorite. Yeah, no, his, his year has been incredible. He's run one, two, th- six races. He's won four of them in, in the one DNF. So four of the five races he actually finished. 144, 29, 144, 38, 143, 65. He lost that race in Rome to... John, help me out. Who won that race? Donovan Brazier won in Rome. How do, how soon we forget? 145, 57. And then one, he did run 141, 89 in Monaco before getting injured. Really impressive. But uh, what I was looking at was in 2017. I mean, he was... He was Almost is impressive. I mean, he didn't run at 141, but he, okay, he was 10th in Rome in the first one. He must have fallen or something. Then he was first, 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 first. You know, he, he won his four races before Worlds last, before Worlds in 2017. He ran 143.18 in London, 143.91 in Rabat, then went to Worlds and only got fifth in the final. So, yeah, favorite, but. I mean, come on, if you're injured, you're not going to win. So we don't know how he's doing. The men's 1500, um, you know, Elijah Managoy has, has been unbeatable at the championship races in recent years, but he's been hurt, hasn't raced in a long time. And his last two races, I think he was 10th and 12th in two Diamond Leagues. That's horrific. So is he even going to be back? I guess we'll find out soon. Yeah, we'll see in the Diamond League final. I haven't gotten an update. Are you confident that Timothy Chariot's the big favorite? Yeah, I mean, I think you have to call Chariot the big favorite because, first of all, he's dominated everyone in the Diamond League for the last two years. But second of all, he's always second behind Manningoy in the in the championships. You know, the African Championships and Commonwealth Games last year and the World Championships in 2017. And he made that big move in the 2017 World Championship final, dropped everyone pretty much apart from Manningoy. And I think that showed that his strategy 
can work on the big stage of, you know, making this hard move, the same thing he does in the Diamond League races. So I think you have to call him a big favorite, but, you know, I th- you would probably argue, oh, he's missed a silver medal and can't get it done in the champs. Uh, unlike Baker Mayfield, I think that that when you judge him about winning and losing, you need to judge it in context. For those of you who don't know what I'm referring to, just Google Baker, Baker Mayfield. He was upset that the New York Giants drafted some quarterback from Duke who didn't wasn't winning all his games in college. It's because he was the quarterback at Duke. Of course, he's not winning a lot of games in college. But um, yeah, his silver medal, he's better than everyone else in the world. Now, they do kind of work together, though, in some of those races, which makes me a little bit nervous. But no, I mean, look at it. Okay, I'll call him the favorite. But assuming Manigoy's not there, though, I mean, in good form. Because, I mean, look at this. He's won in Stockholm, Stanford, Lausanne, Monaco. You know, I mean, that's pretty sick this year. So he's been doing incredible. Um, okay, so we've got a favorite there. The men's steeplechase, Sofiane Albacali of Morocco has a great kick. I would say of everyone who's been racing, he's probably the favorite because, I mean, there's only been, there's been a clear top three of Jaeger, Caprudo, and him. And he's been the second best. So I would say, yeah, he's the favorite. But Caprudo's coming back to the Diamond League this weekend. So to me, that's I'm not real confident in Caprudo. I'm not real confident in in, in uh, El Bacali either. Well, yeah, I, again, this is another thing. This is why the Diamond League Finals are so interesting this year. We get to see some of these athletes who we haven't seen for a while. And Conceslas Caprudo, he's been battling essentially the same injury, I think, as, as Evan Jager, this foot injury. And... Now he's coming back, and you know. Remember, in 2017, he showed up. He had barely been working, doing workouts going into the 2017 Worlds, and he still went out there and outkicked everyone. And then last year in the Diamond League final, he won that race with one shoe. I mean, this is a guy who knows how to battle. So, yeah, we. I want to see how he runs. If he's still hurt, or if he has a setback, El Bacali is your favorite, even though you know he had that one really weird and race in Rabat this year where he was only 11th. But he won the other two ones. I don't think he's... I mean, this is an event, if Caprudo's not right, we could see something really strange happening. Because El Bacali, while he's won both of his races, and he has the world leader in the 804 from Monaco, he hasn't looked totally dominant. He's had to come from behind in some of them. I think we could see, you know, maybe Hillary Bohr is in there contending for the win. He almost beat El Bacali in, in Doha. Maybe an Ethiopian, Charlabeo. I mean... I. Oh yeah, I forgot. It's they actually steeple's getting harder for the American medals because the Ethiopians are getting decent at it for the first time ever, really. John, but Elvin Colley is always weird to me. He looks like it's always like in the middle of the race or like two or three laps to go. It looks like he's doing going to do terrible, and then if he can stick within anywhere close, his kick is insane. I know it's not as good as Caprudo's, but he often runs that way to me. It's like, oh, this guy looks terrible. He's not going to do well, and then at the end of the race, he's he's right there. So, uh, and then. Moving on to the 5,000 and 10,000. Mo Farah is gone. Big void to replace. Well, well, he's not totally gone. We don't know for sure he's gone in the 10K. If you actually saw, there was an article, NBC Olympic talk yesterday. Farah was asked about would he run the 10K at Worlds. And I'll pull up the quotes in a second here. But essentially he was saying like, look, I have the buy. Uh, I can go run this race if I want to. Uh, you know, don't maybe don't just totally ignore me. So, you know, US, wow. you can breaking British- news by Jonathan Galt yet again. Something I wasn't aware of. I mean, I know that he had hit a dash Doha 10k tweet or Instagram a few weeks ago. I, I didn't really believe that. I think he's really isn't this like a week before Chicago? 
It is a week before Chicago, but here's what he told. Here's what he has in the article, NBC Olympic Talk. I really don't know. I think the last minute he said, you know, being asked about the, the deadline. So that, that, that that's the deadline to enter Worlds would be September 16th. That's when he would have to be entered by. But he said, as I said, I get an automatic spot anyway. I don't know. My main target is to defend my Chicago Marathon title, come out to Chicago. All the training is geared towards the marathon. But they said, anything's possible. I'm a reigning champion. I get an automatic spot. There's nothing I have to do. Just, you know. I, to me, he's certainly considering it. I don't think this means he'll run the Worlds, but I think it would be thrilling if he runs Worlds. It would be very interesting if he still honors his commitment to run Chicago a week later. What, he still honors his commitment? You think he might do the 10,000 and not go to Chicago, John? Of course. <laughs> no. I mean, it's a, t- it's a very t- You have to go run a 10K in Doha, and no. then like a week later he's fly training to Chicago for a mar- run a marathon? He's training for a marathon, John. He's got to run the marathon. The money involved in the marathon. Now, if he does this... The mad respect. It's like Hassan doing the 10,000, 1,500 meter double. The mad respect props go all up. I will somewhat forgive him for never running a fast 5,000 or 10,000 in his life or going for a fast time. This would be big cojones. I know I don't like to use the term. I feel like it's sexist, but hey, I used it in Spanish to try to hide my sexism. Very, I mean, very gutsy if he does this. Very, very gutsy. Old school. (laughs) So for someone who says... They don't like using that term. You use it basically every single week, Robert, either at our podcast or our conference call. And then second of all, Mo Farah, if you're listening, the in- if the incentive of another gold medal on the track was not enough, you will get forgiveness from Robert Johnson for not running a fast 5,000 during your career. So if, if that's not enough to get you on Doha, I don't know what is. Yes. I mean, I don't understand how one of the, a 328, 1500 meter man who's got all these global titles at 10,000 can't find time in a span of like five or six years to run one fast 5,000 meters. I don't understand it. It's not like Salazar doesn't have people race, but maybe when you're in Ethiopia all the time, it's hard to find a, a, a fast, you know, 5,000. So anyways, we're talking about the 5,000, 10,000. John, who's going to win the 5,000? I think you and I both agree that the favorite in my mind and your mind is... Yomif Kajelcha the heir to the king of the Nike Oregon project crown for, from uh, Mo Farah. Yeah. I, th- I think he's the guy to beat. I mean, he has, a, obviously he has really good speed. He broke the world record in the indoor mile this year, but his results outdoors this year have been really good. I mean, he's run three, five Ks. One was Peyton Jordan. So the competition wasn't world-class, but he won in Shanghai and he won in Lausanne. And, he looked, he, he was only third in 10 K trials in the Ethiopian trials, but he made the team there, which is what he needed to do. He's the most impressive. He's the two time defending champion world indoors and in the 3k, but obviously, you know, it's Salomon Borrega is really good. Hagos Gebrewet's been having a great year. Telehun Bekele has sort of come up and is now contending. Like, I don't think you can lock, uh, Kajelcha in, you know, his PR is only eight this year. though. granted most of those races, most of the PRs in that, uh, most, sorry, his season best of 13 flat is only eighth in the world this year. But of the seven guys ahead of them, six of them ran their times in the same race in Rome. So I don't know which Kajelcha wasn't in. So I don't know how relevant that is. But I wouldn't call him a lock. No, but he's undefeated at the 5,000, which I think is big. Whereas these other guys that have run faster than, I mean, look at the world leader, Telen Haile. He's only run, well, I guess he's run three of the five 5,000s he's run, but he was fifth in Shanghai, third in Lausanne. Lausanne is his most recent 5,000. Um, 
You've got Gebruet. He has only run one five thousand, one one five thousand of the four that he's run this year. That was in London. Um, and then, you know, Berega hasn't won any. He's second in every five thousand he's run. So, yeah, I mean, that's the guy that I would go with. Now the ten thousand. Well, wait, wait. We're assuming though that Kajelcher is on the team because I have not seen the Ethiopian. We never really know how they're going to pick the team. But if you look at the world list right now. Kajelcha, by season's best, is only fifth among the Ethiopians. And they do get an extra spot because Mukhtar Idris has the bye, but we don't know if he, they're going to use it on him or not or if they're going to give it to whoever wins the Diamond League. Oh, wow. It's oh, wow. not inconceivable that they just go by season's best and don't pick Kajelcha. Wouldn't the Oregon Project realize that and try to get him in a better... I guess you had to run 1254, which isn't exactly <laughs> easy to do. Did they have a trials race, John, that they announced kind of? Not that they have one in the 10K. I don't know if they have one in the 5K. They might just use the final in the Diamond League. So that one we'll see. But let's move on to the 10,000, Robert. Obviously, Kajelcher is a threat there as well. I mean, everyone and their mother is running this race. Maybe Mo Farah. We don't, we don't even know. I think even if Farah runs, if he's in the middle of marathon training, he's trying to run Chicago a week later, I think probably he's going to get beat. But... You know, Kajelcha, you have Ronex Kipruto of Kenya. So let's talk about actually the Kenyan trials were just this morning. And so we have the results there. Uh, Jeffrey Camworrell won that one. Now, these times, pretty good considering the race was held at 5,800 feet in Nairobi, but Camworrell wins it 27 24. Ronex Kipruto second, 27 26. And then Rogers Quemoy, who is uh, in Camworrell, he's in his group in Kaptegat. He gets third in 27-26, so that's your team for the World Championships. So those guys are going. The Ethiopians have Geverwet and Borega and Kajelcha, who will be threats. And then the Ugandans, Jacob Kiplimo, and my pick, I think this guy's the favorite. I don't know if I would call him the heavy favorite. Joshua Cheptegei, the World Cross Country Champion earlier this year, and then he won the two-mile. He outkicked Paul Chalimo to win the two-mile at the pre-classic. I think he is the, and the silver medalist from London 2017, I think he's the guy to beat in the 10K. Hard to argue against that. I mean, he's winning the two-mile at pre and World Cross is pretty sick, right? I mean, that's pretty darn good. And he really took it to, to, to Mo Farah two years ago. But... John, let's talk a little about these Kenyan trials. Before, I mean, off air yesterday, I think we were, we were talking about the 10,000. And, you know, um, we were talking about the Ethiopians. We were talk- but then we, when, we, when we got to the Kenyans, I mean, you know, we, we said Gabriel won, won the Ethiopian trials. But then I pointed out that, um, you know, Caputo had, had beaten all the Ethiopians in Stockholm. So, but your, your, your take on the Kenyans was you thought that Caputo, that uh, Capruto, right, was the man to beat. As Among the Kenyans? I think he would, yeah, I thought he would probably be the best Kenyan. I thought the Chept guy was the best guy overall, but he's obviously not Kenyan. Um, so, yeah, for Cam Roar to beat him, now maybe they would like, you know, we're all making the team. I didn't see how the race played out, but I think that's a good win for Cam Roar over Capruto. Uh, and the other thing was, yeah, Capruto, I mean, I just, I just think uh, Capruto got beat convincingly by both Cam Morrill and Joshua Cheptegei at the biggest race they ran earlier this year, which was World Cross. So I know Kip Ruto had this amazing race in Stockholm, 26.50 in the terrible conditions, but you know, just because he ran that one really fast race, it's, it doesn't mean it's not the be-all end-all. Well, I know, but World Cross was 
in March, John. And it was an extremely hilly race. So the fact that he can't run a mountain race and finish higher than six doesn't really mean much to me. We're talking I mean, about a perfect. Look at I mean, the guys who won. All the best guys who are at the best, the top five or six. I would, uh, I would yeah. say that the order is irrelevant. Uh, sorry, is relevant. Well, last time I checked, the ten thousand is the elevation gain and loss is zero. It's pretty flat. I don't know that track in Doha. I've heard things. No, there was that track that has a hill on it. I forgot. It's, it, there's an internet. Google it. Yeah, I've seen the, the I've seen the pictures. But wait, who? Okay, are you? Who are you arguing? Do you disagree that Chapter Guy's the favorite or what? No, I think I would have. You talked me out of saying Capruta was better than Cam War, and then today we didn't even. Well, first of all, why are the ten thousand trials today? We thought the Kenyan trials were in three weeks. But I guess they're gonna run the ten thousand. No, no, today. no, only the ten k today because they want to give him time to recover, which I actually think is a good point because otherwise it would just be two weeks before two high level ten ks in two weeks. I don't think is a great idea. So. I don't know. I'm excited to see Camaro do well again. He hasn't been very tip-top as well. It's just exciting. I and mean, I think it's going to be a great race. And there's going to be guys worthy of a medal who don't medal in that race. Yeah, please run this race, Mo Farah, for the oh my good gosh. of the sport. Now, you do think he'll medal if he runs it, right? Uh, yes, because it's sort of a ips post facto. I don't know if I'm using that phrase correctly. But the fact that he would decide to me- to run the race... I don't think Mo Farrell would run the race if he didn't think he could medal. So I think just by showing up, that shows that he would be in good enough shape to medal. Okay, since we, we talked about the men's field, let's talk about the women. 800 through, through steeple. I mean, 800, obviously, A.G. Wilson. She's the one to beat. We don't need to spend any more time on that. 1,500, though, to me, uh, I don't have a favorite again. It's like, uh, well, actually, I do. Would you like to hear it? But I don't feel confident in this at all. Are you saying Gonzebe de Barber, Robert? Correct. I mean, I, I don't like saying that just because, well, she doesn't have a history of doing really well at the outdoor championships. She seems to be a specialist at running well when no one's paying attention. She did. She won Worlds in 2015. Um, so, you know, she, um, yeah, 2015 and 2016, she was the Olympic silver medalist. But, I mean, if. You know, if you look at her this year, she's undefeated in the 1500. She's run 355 and 356 in her last two races. Admittedly, she hasn't raced on the Diamond League circuit at all, really anywhere, since June 30th. So we don't know what she's up to. But, um, you know, if you look at the 1500, I would say, who who, who, who do you feel confident that is going to beat her? I mean, I, I feel like um, Faith Kipiegon has been unbeatable in recent years when she's healthy. And, but she's coming back from the pregnancy. We don't really know what type of fitness she's in. Safan Hassan is a world leader, but she's probably not running the 1500. Laura Muir is hurt right now. And then, you know, next on the on the world list, good off the game. Well, no. Don't forget, Shelby Houlihan's going to be in that mix. But, yeah, last time Houlihan raced DeBarber in a global championship, she got spanked twice at World Indoors in the 15 and the 3K. So, yeah, I don't know. I mean, DeBarber... I, I do question. I'm not entirely sure she's a great tactician. I think her, she's just has the fitness most of these times that she's just so fit that it's basically impossible to beat her. But I don't know. There, there are so many questions about so many of these women. Yeah, it's exciting though. I view this all as very exciting because I mean, Faith Kipia going look. She's only raced once. Guess what? She won the pre classic. So I mean, that was June 30th. So assuming things have. You know, she's had two months since then. Yeah, but she got an adductor injury that caused her to drop out the withdrawal from the London Diamond League. So, but does that mean she wasn't able to train, or does that mean we don't know? I guess we just don't know. 
Steeplechase, we, we've gone over that earlier in the show. I mean, I think that Chip Kovic is still the favorite, but... Uh, I call her. I'd still call her a heavy favorite. She, yeah, she's lost once in like you know in the last count in the last year, but yeah, I think I don't. I'm not saying she's invincible. And then in the in the women's five thousand and ten thousand, I think before just before we started this podcast, you and I both were going to say Helena Brady deserves to be called the favorite. I mean, she's been unreal in recent recent years, and one World Cross this year. I know she hasn't run the ten thousand before. You know, she has to be considered the favorite in the 5,000. Um, you know, Savan Hassan is very good, but Obiri sort of has her number. But, I mean, today, right, Obiri lost the Kenyan. John, give us the results from the women's 10,000-meter trials. That were handwritten, by the way. The result, I love it. The results are handwritten down to the hundredth of a second. Yeah, I, I find that so interesting that, uh, you know, America, you can sort of get the screenshots immediately of, like, these uh, high-tech timing and Kenya, the results of that this huge race which is much better quality in the distances than the american race is handwritten some of the names are spelled wrong like jeffrey Cameron and you know some of these other ones they can't get the spelling right helen obiri they did spell it right there's two l's in helen so good job but she lost to agnes tirop so two world cross-country champions going one two it was tirop 31 25.00 and then obiri just behind in 31 25.38 and then third place, Rosemary Wanjiru, who I will freely admit I'd never, I had never really heard of before today. She was third in 31.26. And then there's a gap to fourth place, uh, brilliant Jip Korea in 31.30. So that's your team to Worlds, Tirop, Obiri. They're leaving behind Irene Cheptai, who was seventh. She was coming back from pregnancy. She was uh, the World Cross Country Champion in 2017. So... That's how deep this Kenyan team is as a former World XC champ gets seventh at their trials. But yeah, Tirop Obiri. I mean, Obiri, I think... Would you call her the favorite in the 10K, Robert? Well, I would have until she lost this race. So I'm, I'm still going to call her the favorite, I guess, just because it's not, the race wasn't... The actual World Championship wasn't today. But um, but it's interesting, the 10K... So the 10K is first for the women, you know, as it usually is at these meets, they've flipped it this year, the 10K second for the men, but it's still first for the women. 5K is Obiri's best event. I think we both agree on that. And we've seen the last few years, you know, this maybe this is just exclusive to Elmaz Ayana, but Ayana won the 10K in dominant fashion, both in Rio and London. She comes back, everyone assumes she'll win the 5K too. She doesn't. She gets beat in Rio by Ch- uh, Vivian, Vivian Chariot and by Obiri, and then she gets beat in London by Obiri, and I think Obiri, like, it's a hard double to do, to win a 10,000 and then come back and then run really well and win that 5,000 as well. I know Mo Farah has done it a lot on the men's side, but in recent years, uh, it's been very difficult for women. So I just wonder how much will that race take out of Helen Obiri. But then, you know, some of her top rivals may be also trying the double, like Sifan Hassan. Yeah, I mean, I think Hassan would be the big person that I would think it could derail all these plans, but she's doing the double too. So it, you're right. You don't know how people are going to double back. I mean, it's just not a given that, you know, you're going to be there for the second race. Although you have a full week and it's only one race. Well, they've got to run the 5,000 trials. So who knows? John, as back, Rosemary Wanjuru, you obviously haven't been paying attention to the U.S. road scene. The 24-year-old has, has won Cherry Blossom this year and the Lila Bloomsday race. She's won both. So... Um, but her yeah, her track credentials aren't exactly impressive. Fifteen oh eight for five thousand. Looks like she's based in in Japan, so she's all right. Mister Hordy 
dipshit over here. Robert, please tell me, did you know those facts one hour ago, or are you just reading them off Tillis Departure I do and trying want- to sound clever? I'm reading them off Tillis Departure, <laughs> but I, I like to, like, to me, like, growing up, I used to read Running Times magazine, and they would really... Like when I, well, when I started getting into sport in like high school and college, they would talk about the road scene. And you didn't have like Diamond League races that you could watch. So the road races were kind of a big deal. And Khalid Kanuchi would run all these road races and then run the Chicago Marathon. So I paid more attention to that type of stuff. So Cherry Blossoms, you know, I must have paid attention to that this year because it's nearby. So, um, but yes, I, I did not remember that off the top of my head, I guess. But, um, anyways, should be a great world is all I'm trying to say. Yeah. No, I think that's great. I think that's, pretty good to put a cap on our track action i mean speaking of the roads robert do we want to talk we did have boots on the ground at one of america's most famous road races falmouth this past weekend i was there do you want to talk some about falmouth yes, road race i anticipated the first american men's win in 31 years and that's why we sent you there john also to enjoy a little relaxation on the massachusetts beach right did you see any sharks no you were like paranoid about these sharks why I'm going on vacation to the region soon. I don't want to tell people where I'm going, but I don't want celebrity stalkers or anything. But there's a lot of sharks. I've been reading about it. Wall Street Journal had a huge article on it. No, I mean, I stayed, stayed at my friend's house. It was right on the water. I actually, it was so busy working. I didn't have time to go to the beach or do any of that stuff. But uh, I didn't hear about any shark sightings. Doesn't mean they weren't there, but... So, John, when you're there, like, how much bigger of a deal is the race than the mile? They have the mile the day before. Do a lot of people show up at the mile? Is the mile at a high school track? Where is it? The, the mile, yeah, it is at the local high school, which is, they do a good job of this because the mile, the local high school is also where the expo, the race expo is. So everyone has to go there to pick up their bibs. They do it at 5 p.m., so it's not too late the night before the race. And they have all these kids' miles, Right, or I don't know if the kids ran a whole mile. There are some of them went out so fast. I felt I was like, there's no way they're making it a whole mile. But they have all these kids races right before. So they actually do a good job of getting, there are probably a, a thousand people there or so. And the one difficult thing was some of these elite miles, they don't let anyone on the infield, which is makes my job easier because I can stand on the infield as media and watch the whole race going on. This one, everyone, it was basically a free for all. You could stand wherever you want which made it pretty hard to follow the races because you'd have people blocking your view. But that's a you know journalist complaint no one really cares about. And they had an elevated platform. It wasn't too bad. It, pretty good mile races, by the way. Josh Thompson and Corey McGee getting the wins. But the, yeah, th- those are sort of the the uh, appetizer. And then the, the road race on Sunday morning is the the main course. And it's interesting. Some of the mile, a lot of the elite milers will double back and run the road race the next day. And some of them will just do it as a tempo. It was for fun, but... Riley Masters ran the elite mile and then came back and won some prize money. I think he finished eighth in the the main road race. So that was a pretty uh, you know nice little lucrative bonus for him. But in the miles, Josh Thompson, Corey McGee won kind of, I guess that's who we would have thought would have won, right? You know, I'm really hoping to see Josh get in some big races. I mean, he did so well at USA's, but is he going to chase a standard? Is he going to try to run fast in Europe? I mean, there's not really a lot of races he can get into. It's so late in the season. Well, he said he's running the USA versus Europe dual meet known as the match, which is going to be in Minsk in September. So he's running that. I'm not sure if he's going to race again in between now and then. But yeah, you would think, again, these Americans, like if you didn't make the team, I'm shocked that some, a lot of them just didn't start to say, hey, two weeks after USA's, let's all go find a 1500 and try to break 335, get that Olympic standard. Um 
I don't but think you, there's a lot of races like that, and maybe you have commitments to Falmouth. There was a road mile in Cleveland, the Guardian Mile, where Nick Willis won. Now, Nick is going to Paris. He does not have the World Championship standard. That's one thing to look forward to on this Saturday or Sunday. Saturday, I think, right? Mm-hmm. Paris? Saturday, yep. But, John, in the main road race, Edward King Ches was there. We thought that he would win it, but he did not. We overlooked an American who come close very three or four years in a row. First, second, or, I mean, second or third, right? Yeah, four so years. this is my we, – we had last week our first Where Your Dreams Become Reality segment, and this is going to be my Where Your Dreams Become Reality Athlete of the Week, Leonard Correa. So he was not only was he the first American man to win Falmouth since 1988, Mark Kerp, but in the last four years, he had finished third, second, second, and third at Falmouth. Three of those times were behind Stephen Sambu who has won the race. He ran the race four years in a row from 2014 through 2017. He won. And Korea this time, it was down to Korea and Sambu once again with about two miles to go. And Korea, generally, if you watch him race, he doesn't like to lead. You know, he'll sit back and he'll kick very late. This time, Sam and Sambu was motioning at him. He looked, turned around at one point instead of like, sort of like brought his hand and motioned for him to take the lead and Korea didn't do it. But then, a mile and a half to go, he was feeling good. He made the move uh, and dropped Sambu uh, you know, before the final big hill on Grand Avenue and then came down. He won the race, and afterwards he was just you know, totally overjoyed that he was able to finally win the, the Lusa Falmouth title. He said, this race I've been trying like five times. I have to win it. If I don't win it today, I might not have the chance to win it again. So congratulations, Leonard Correa. That's my... Where your dreams become reality, uh, athlete of the week. He wins in eighteen thousand dollars, thirty-two eleven. But John and, and Sharon Lochetti, who I believe is Edward Cheswick's girlfriend, also former NCAA ten thousand meter champion, or maybe we should say Edward Cheswick is her boyfriend. Don't want to be sexist here. She was a surprise winner in the women's race with Sarah Hall, only five seconds back. Sarah Hall said she was going to run race pace, marathon race pace, and ends up running faster than that and doing quite well. But what I want to point about this race, John, is there was kind of a number of big names, like, way back. Do these people just show up to, like, it's a fun event and want to get paid? Or, like, okay, Des London, ninth, 38-33, so she's more than two minutes back. Yeah, but, De- I mean, Des is run. she's going to run New York. She's probably in her early stages of her buildup. At this point, she's clearly a marathoner. Like, that's her best event by far. She's never been known as, like, a really, really good short-distance runner, so... What are you expecting from her in a seven-miler in August, Robert? Well, Molly Seidel, even 11th, no prize money, 38, 45. I know she hasn't been running well. It's just, just I don't like seeing big names not running well. So, will your dreams I mean, do not become reality? If, if big names didn't, if big names ran all well all the time, the sport would be boring. We'd have nothing to talk about, Robert. Fair enough, fair enough. But yeah, Sharon Lacady, impressive win. And Sarah Hall, I mean, yeah, I, I pointed this out, but... She was second in this race in 2015 as well. She ran 37.10. Now she's age 36. She's running two marathons this fall, Berlin and New York, and then ran the trials next year. And she ran significantly faster, 36.34, as opposed to 37.10 uh, this year versus 2015. So really impressive stuff for Sarah Hall. And since we're talking about the women, should we talk about Nike? Nike's gotten some positive publicity this last week for coming out with a new pregnancy policy. So they've said that they will not, if a woman on, you know, on their sponsorship contract um, gets pregnant, they will not 
cut their salary. So I think in the past they would put them on hold, right, while they were pregnant and not get paid, and then they would start up afterwards. But the problem was if they didn't run well afterwards, they would get cut. So now they're going to continue to pay them while pregnant, I believe. And they can't be cut in the eight months before the baby is due or the 10 months after the baby is due. John, are you in approval of this process, of this this uh, new policy? Well, of course I approve it. I mean, who wouldn't approve of, of this? But yeah, it's good. I think it just shows the power of journalism. I mean, Lindsey Krauss at the New York Times and Alicia Montano and Allison Felix have been speaking out for it. And when you get a big platform like the Times behind this message, people stay, wake up and listen. And Nike was spurred to change because the athletes, it showed the athletes have power and journalists have power. So and I think a good solution was reached here. And I'm glad to see Nike stepping up to the plate. So I would say kudos all around. John, I just asked you, I wanted you to look good. So very woke. So the women could think John's very sensitive and pro-feminist. But instead, you got insulted by me asking for approval of the process. But no, I... I well, what do you think? I mean, I'm not going to say no. No, like, I, as someone who, who has a wife that works and a new baby, I, I think that it's it's very important to try to... to it's very hard to balance. You know, if you, if you choose not to, to, to go to work and not stay at home, or even, well, some people can't, you know, choose to stay home because they don't have the money, but um, it's very hard to balance. So I'm all for it. But it's kind of weird that... I feel like Nike got piled on here. I don't think that their policy was that much different than what anyone else's policy was. It would just put everyone whole while they're in pregnancy and then pay them afterwards. But I, I think the reason why Nike was the focus is A, they're the biggest. And B, they started doing these, you know, they do these commercials where they're doing all these women empowerment ads and people are like, hey, shut up. <laughs> you're so hypocritical. So it was kind of interesting how I feel like it was a pile on Nike, but I guess, you know, people like to pile on number one a lot. So. Well-deserved pile-on and well, well-deserved response. Yeah. Um, also, Robert, we have a request. Weldon Johnson, while on vacation, he knows we're recording the podcast right Did now. Did he just type in here? I see it here. Amazing. No, I, I typed that in. It was a text message he sent to us. But he wants us to get political. He wants us to apologize to the people of Aarhus because the American president, Donald Trump, has canceled his visit to Denmark after finding out that you know, negotiations for the acquisition of Greenland going poorly. That's a sentence I never thought I would say on the Let's Run.com podcast that the U.S. president doesn't want to go to Denmark because he can't buy Greenland. But apparently that's the reason. But Aarhus, I, I think Donald Trump is missing out. Denmark was a wonderful country. We visited Copenhagen and Aarhus. Terrific hosts. Really like the scenery. Nothing bad to say about Denmark. Mickler beer, you loved as well. Mm-hmm. It's clear you guys had a good time over there. And I don't think the people of Denmark should view this as a negative. Donald Trump obviously loves Denmark. He wants to purchase a significant portion of it. <laughs> you know, it's kind of their version of Alaska. Hey, Russia gave it to us. We bought the Virgin Islands. I mean, hey, I'm happy that we did. So uh, the Virgin Islands are my place. My wife loves like Cape Cod and Nantucket and those places. To me, Virgin Islands is the place to go. So. Yeah, well, it's interesting. The U.S. Virgin Islands, USA acquired them from Denmark. Am I? Uh, yeah. That's, yeah. No, that's what I'm saying. People think it's crazy you're going to buy land. I mean, we used to buy land all the time. Oh, one one other thing about Falmouth I wanted to mention. Sorry. Uh, shout out Joan Benoit Samuelson, six-time Falmouth Road Race champion. And she ran 45-26 for the seven miles, which is 629 a mile. Despite 70 degree temperature in the mid 70s, 98% humidity, it was very muggy on Cape Cod. She won her age group by almost seven minutes. So 
just 62 years old to run 629 miles, just reel them off like like that. Very impressive for Joni. And a uh, hat tip to Fast Women on Twitter for pointing that out. But Wait, how old is, how old is she? She's 62. I thought you said 69. I was like, wow. Still impressive. Still, still pretty impressive for 62. Um, and then one other thing that happened last week, this was in the news a lot, was uh, Usain Bolt. It's the 10-year anniversary of his world records in the 100 and 200 meters. One thing I'm kind of interested in, Robert, I put this out in a poll on Twitter, and the responses were very even. How old do you think is the person who will break Usain Bolt's world record in the 100 meters right now? The options were 20 or older, 10 to 19, 0 to 9, or has not yet been born. Let's say like 0 to 9. Clayton Johnson. You heard it here first. Future wow. world record holder. We've taken him to the track for the first time. He seems to like to run around in circles. He did one lap. He didn't. He, he, and he was happy to run extra distance. He went out to lane eight, rolled around. I don't know. If, he seemed more into the 400, though, John, at this stage. I guess, though, Bolt, Bolt started as a 200-400 guy, though, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, what, what's your take? Like, when do you think... I I don't see it being broken in the next decade. I think it's... Pro- I mean, it, it only takes one guy, though. There could be some guy who's, like, 16 right now and is just some freak of nature like Bolt and comes around. So I'm not going to say it's not going to be broken, but I, I'm i trying to think how long did some of these other records last. Like, Michael Johnson, his 400 world record, he said it in 99, and it wasn't broken until 2016. So that's 17 years. I would say that Bolt's might be even more impressive than that, so it might last, like, maybe 25 years. So let's say it's broken in 25 years from when it was set, which would be 2030, 2040, no, 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 2036, right? So while we're talking about sprinters, I, I read an article on the CBC, and they're all into Andre de Grasse. You know, he used to be sort of the heir apparent to Bolt, but he's been struggling with injuries in recent years. And there was an article on him, but they had a quote from Donovan Bailey, the former uh, world record holder, I think, or Olympic champion in the 100. Both, yeah. Um, and they were talking about Johan Blake. And I thought this quote, John, well, just I'll read the quote to you. Um, he says, I read an article, this is Donovan Bailey, talking about Johan Blake. I read an article where he said he's going to be bringing it in Doha. So he's putting himself verbally in the conversation. But he's never put himself physically in the conversation. John, that seems like an unfair slam to me. Do you agree or not? Yeah, well, first of all, like, never putting, does he mean never? Like, literally, Johan Blake, in 2012, people were saying he was going to beat Usain Bolt in the final. He got silver in the 100 and 200. So he was in the conversation there. But even... Even recently, I mean, he was fourth in London at the 2017 Worlds and fourth in Rio in the 2016 Olympics. So he was in the conversation. Just because you're in the conversation doesn't mean you're going to be meddling. But yeah, I mean, he, I would say, I mean, I think he's talking about more recent, not before the injury, but fourth in 2017 isn't horrible. And he's, he's, he did actually win the Birmingham meet over DeGrasse <laughs> a few days later. So that might have shut Bailey up. And then he has broken 10, you know, I mean, they only ran 10.07 with a two meter win, tailwind, which seems weird. But he's broken, you know, he's broken 10 three times this year. I mean, I don't think he's going to win worlds, but I think he could medal. And he also could not make the final. I mean, I mean, you know, who, who knows there? 
But um, it was just an interesting thing if we're going to talk sprints. Now, John, you've talked about where your dreams become reality. I was thinking about I, – I, I couldn't come up with something positive. So since Weldon wants – you know, I'm sure he's going to read the podcast – listen to the podcast and demand that we follow his segments. I'm going to do where your dreams do not become reality and trash a few people. We've already trashed them, I think, though. Kate Grace bombed that 800. Really, really not a good week for any U.S. distance woman. Kate Grace, seventh. Well, I guess A.G. Wilson was good, but the Kate Grace did not do well in that race. The American women in the mile did not do well in, in, in Birmingham. And then uh, I hate to, to, to pile on a teenager. You don't need to. No one's making you. John knows where I'm going. Max Bergen, the kid had run 145, but um, I was so excited to see him run a diamond lane. But uh, anyways, runs 147.99, tenth place, not good. But I, I, I just this morning, John, before we got on the podcast, because I told you I might mention in you, like, really, you're going to pile on a teenager? I'm like, eh. I just watched a, an Athletics Weekly interview of him after the race. I think it was with Jason Henderson, and it's on Twitter. You can find it. And I should include the audio, but since, by the way, folks, I'm going to be trying to edit this podcast. I've never done that before, so I'm not going to try to put audio in, external audio, so I'm not doing it. But I thought this post-race interview was fantastic. And I thought it was something that Alan Webb never learned. It showed something Alan Webb never learned, and a lot of top U.S. high schoolers never learn. They don't learn how to lose. I hung out with Alan Webb his freshman year in Michigan when Chris Lear was writing that book. My good friend Chris Lear was writing that book about sub four about his freshman year in Michigan. And, you know, part of the problem was Webb thought, you know, he'd run 353 in high school. He thought he'd run 346 next year. He just thought, I always win, you know. And that's not the way it works. You've got to get used to, to you know, you want to be think of yourself as a winner, but losing is part of the sport. And this post-race interview, this guy was fine. He's like, well... It wasn't a good race. I haven't been feeling well. Apparently, he was injured. So he missed the European under 18s, under 20s, where England still went 1-2-3. So he's been injured, missed some time. and But in this race, he had a really good attitude. Like He was like, well, I wasn't last. He nipped one guy right before the line. And he was excited about that. And they're like, well, you're still going to do US, you know, the British trials this week? And he has the world standard. He's like, I don't know. So I just thought his outlook was amazing. He was willing to joke about not being last and how he nipped someone at the line. He acknowledged that he had been hurt, and it just wasn't a great race for him. And I think, you know, one of the things I want to do with my son, and I read this in a profile of some famous person. I still don't know who it is, but I, this, this story is what I want to do with my own son. I want to ask him when he comes home from school once a week, what did you fail at this week? Failure is okay. It's part of life. You know what I'm saying? You're not you're not shooting high enough if you're not willing to fail. So he's been injured. He could have easily skipped this meet. Instead, he ran it and got beat. And so his dreams did not become reality now. But hopefully in the future, Max, we'll see good things from you. Well, Papa Johnson doling out the life lessons there. Yes. Now, John, what did you learn from the message board? Do you have any favorite threads? I have two. There's so much wisdom on the message board. I know it's somewhat controversial, but there's a lot of fascinating stuff. My first is, did you read the? Did you hear about the triathletes that were disqualified for holding hands as they crossed one two? I saw the pictures. I mean, I honestly I didn't look into this story in detail, but like, totally absurd. What's the what is the reasoning behind DQing them? It just sounds ridiculous. Well, it's just a triathlon rule. You must try to. Why is it a rule? It's not like it's it's stupid. Yes, but you know, hey, it is a rule. But I learned 
from the message board last week that in 1975, Frank Shorter and Bill Rogers, they held hands and crossed together at the 1975 Virginia 10-miler, which is still a pretty big road race nowadays. Um, and it was pretty interesting. <laughs> There's a TV camera. If you go to the Let's Run thread on it, you, you'll, um, on the triathletes, uh, t- two, two British triathletes are DQ'd after crossing the line, one to a Tokyo qualifying event and holding hands. There's a video to the to the television broadcast from 1975, and it was it was Rogers' idea. And they're like, "Why'd you do? Why'd you propose it?" And he's like, "Well, I thought I might lose the race." And Frank Shorter did not agree to do it initially. And Rogers asked again, like, you know, 50 seconds later, and he's like, "Yeah, we would run hard enough, you know." And I think the race is in like September, so they're probably getting ready for like you know marathons. So, well, actually, speaking of Frank Shorter, very cool moment. Uh, Falmouth Road Race. I saw him. He he ran it this year, and he was down in the start area walking around, and he had a Marshfield singlet on, which is pre Steve Prefontaine's old high school singlet. And he was just sort of milling around the start area. I was kind of interested. I'm like, I wonder how many people right here realize there's an Olympic gold medalist in the marathon just sort of walking around in their midst. Where was this? At Falmouth Road Race this weekend. Did you get a picture, John? I tried. He was too far away. My phone didn't have, like, if I had a specialty camera, my my phone, it was very pretty shitty quality. John, you need me to to be with you. I I knew I... You have all these breaking stories, and you don't know how to break them. You've you've revealed, like, three exclusives on this podcast, just sort of as a size. Was it actually Prefontaine's, like, singlet that he ran? Uh, I don't think it was his actual singlet, but it's, I mean, it said Marshfield on it. I wanted to... The problem was he he was on the other side. I should have... I should have gone up and talked to Frank and asked him, hey, you know, what the story behind it was. This I could have been a, chance too, a much better story than some Falmouth Road Race recap that no one's going to read in 10 years. And if it was his actual singlet, you should have beaten him over the head and stolen it. Probably worth a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, then I could write an article about my own arrest. Track and field journalist beats up Frank Shorter, steals historic Prefontaine singlet. No, I knew I knew it was being a good shot, but I couldn't get one. He was on the other side of these barriers. It was a would have been a pain in the ass. I, I sort of regret now not going up and trying to talk to him though. Next year we'll tag team the event, John. My wife wants to go to Cape Cod, so I can go there and you do the work, and I'll just tell you what's what's the big story. Be on the lookout for Frank Shorter in yeah. his Prefontaine singlet. But there's another message board thread I really want to talk about, and it fascinates me. And it was on. <clears throat> Alexia Frameson. And Frameson bounces back from injury to finish third at the Pan Ams. Her workouts indicated four flat fitness. It was a, from the, the, the thread is referencing a Dystat feature on her where they talked about her training, Coach Mike Hickey, and how much better her training was this year. And, you know, I, I really love this thread. And, um, you know, my favorite phrase about running is, well, I have two. I have a, a few rules. You have like five favorite phrases, Robert. Let's be real. Yes. But one of them is always talent doesn't go away. But one other thing that I'm also obsessed with is, and John can vouch for this, is when there's a high school girl, a teenage girl, and she doesn't PR from one year to the next, like at age 16 to 17, I freak out and assume that she's done. When Mary Kane did it, I told John, I'm like, John, she didn't PR this year. He's like, but she's won World Juniors. I said, John, she didn't PR. True. Admit it, John. <laughs> this is what this happened. This is true. Yes. And a Frameson has not PR since 2015. 403.39. The next year she ran 406.38, then 404.75, 407.06. This year she ran 404 twice in May and has not run faster. Now it's come out that she's been hurt for a while. 
It's her first real injury in a long time. So I'm sort of torn. Talent doesn't go away, but then I'm going to add an addendum. Talent doesn't go away unless you're a teenage woman, and then it can go away. I think you're still talented, but your body changes, so it's like if you're carrying around extra weight and stuff, and it's just harder. But Mike Hickey, her coach, has well, I believe it's him. I don't. It says someone posting the name Coach Mike Hickey has has talked about her training in great detail, and this blew my mind. He said, you know, we ran the two races in May because I thought it would be good preparation for the World Championships. He's like, has, have two, has an American ever run 404 within three days, twice within three days of each other? It's a good point. But he said her training this year, she's run a 10, her best 10-mile threshold this year has been 15 seconds per mile better than any time in the past. Her best 3 by 800 meter workout is six years, this year is six seconds per 800 better than. Her best 5 by one k workout, four seconds better. Her best 100 fly repetition workout, 0.2 seconds better. And then he has this long quote about how he's, there's been a plan for all these years. The past year has been spent improving aerobic power. Her training has had a major focus on VO2 max, speed, and power up until then, with attention paid to aerobic development and threshold running as well. Now, top end speed peaks out between 19 and 22. So she's 22 now. And VO2 max progression slows down around 22 as well. So now is the appropriate time to focus on aerobic power. This process cannot be rushed or the athlete suffers in long-term development if these parameters are not acknowledged. So John, it sounds like he's got a multi-year plan here. I thought she would never PR again. And now I'm going to change this and say she will PR next year. Well, I mean, I thought she was going to PR the pre-classic, and it turns out, you know, she was kind of hurt. So I was I was never on the never PR again bandwagon, but I read this and I was like, oh my God, I'm so much more optimistic now. But uh, it's interesting. Some message board people bring this up. They're like, "Yeah, this is we're doing great in workouts. It's all fine, dandy, but you got to translate it to results." And you know, for better or worse, and maybe she was she was injured. She hasn't done that yet. So until I actually see it on the track, I mean, I took, there are plenty of coaches I talked to who were optimistic about their athletes' fitness. They're like, "Oh, this person was in such great shape, or they're going to do such good things this year." And you don't always see it translate to results. Obviously, the fifteen hundred team is a tough one to make for the US. So I think it would be awesome. Yeah. If, if Ephraimson comes out next year and she's running four flat and she's, you know, challenging to make the Olympic team, but I just want to pump the brakes a little. Not, I'm not saying I don't believe my kicky. I just want to, you know, I'd like to see her doing races and hopefully she can stay healthy and that's what happens. So I reached out to let's run.com coaching guru, John Kellogg folks. I may be John Kellogg may be coming out of workout uh, out of retirement soon with his own paid coaching site. You heard it here first. But I said, John, I, I read that part about her workouts. And I'm like, if they're improving that much in workouts, like how much faster should they run for 800? And he's like, I would say about, I mean, for 1500, he's like about eight seconds. I mean, you know, she was running six seconds per 800 faster, four seconds per thousand. So he kind of averaged the two, I guess. And eight seconds. So 403 would be 355. Now, I don't think that's going to happen. Now, he made a big, big caveat like you did, John. He said, there's a huge difference between running like a one intermittent effort in a race. You know, and Weldon talked about that a lot in college. Like, his coach used to say to him at Yale, you're running the same workouts as my All-Americans in the same times. So why aren't you running better in races? But my brother was basically racing his workouts and had nothing left for the races. But um, John said that the training sounded well. Um, John's really into the long-term development, and he thinks that you can burn out a lot of kids in, in high school. Um, you know, But um, he said it all sounds about right. He's like, you can continue to improve your running economy as you age, after age 22. And that's one of the purposes of tempo running. Um, you know, you get more efficient at, at running. But, um, 
you know, and then he did take one swipe because he at the bottom of the email at the bottom of the post, uh, Coach Hickey said, um, you know, who his mentors were, and he he said Joe V Hill, Seb Coe, Alberto Salazar, Rob Connor, Christensen, Dellinger, etc., Messer, many high school coaches, and John's like, well, I wouldn't pay much attention to anything Peter Coe wrote. <laughs> well, some of the track training specifics were really good. John doesn't like Coe because he thinks that Sebco had to have a bigger base than is what is reported in those books. Um, but John's, you know, thing says, look, you can burn them out a lot easier on high intensity than on high mileage at a young age. So if you're a high school coach or a young coach of a young athlete, he says, wait until you're 15 for regular track training. You can run occasional races when you're younger in middle school, but just run easy between the races. So if you want to do middle school track, just run the races as your workouts, and do strides in between. Folks, there you have it. John Kellogg agreeing with Mike Hickey. Expect another PR, perhaps, for Alexa Frameson. Okay, enough teenage girls talk, John. Let's talk about teenage boys. There's another thread I want to talk about, and this thread is referencing an article in the Austin American Statesman written by Joanna Gretchel. Is that how you say it, John? I believe so. Um, and... It's on UT freshman's 400-meter star, Jonathan Jones. He ran 44.63 as a freshman this year. I think he was like third at NCAAs. So, really good. Now, I think he's a little bit older for freshman. Yeah, he's actually 20 years old. I just looked it up. So, he, t- he took a year off between um, between high school and, and college because he started track late. Or, or He was from... Um, Barbados is where he's from. God, I was going to say Bermuda. But, uh, guys... This thread's fascinating, or the article was fascinating, and I started a thread about it when I saw it. You know, everyone's talking about like, one of the most popular threads, and th- th- these threads are like, what would Jeremy Warner have run for 800? What would Michael Johnson run for 800? Every, distance running is always about the future. You know, somebody will be winning a silver medal, and we'll be talking about, well, what would Max Bergen do in three years? I mean, it's just about the future. It, we're always talking about the next big thing in running, and we're also talking about, well, what if you move someone up? You know, Jenny Simpson, hey, she's had a decent career, 1,500, but damn it. If she had stayed for the steeplechase, she'd be so much better. That's me. So it actually, a lot of times it drives me nuts, except when it's Jenny Simpson. I really enjoy it. But this guy, Jonathan Jones, he's one of the world's best 400-meter runners. And first of all, the feature was was really impressive because Eldrick Foriel talks about how he's different than most young kids these days. He listens to the coach and does exactly as he's told. And remember, this is the guy that ran the entire race in Monaco. And it's just like he's focused. He's doing his thing. He saw another guy, and sort of it explains like that's his focus. And there's so I, I loved how it tied in why he did that to like his how he follows instructions and stuff like that. So he didn't want to stop in the middle of the race, and he was afraid that the coach would, would yell at him. So, um, but he started his career as a distance runner. He was a fifteen hundred meter, eight hundred, three k guy, I think, in in Barbados, and he's run like. He ran 148.16 at age 17. He was like the fastest 17-year-old in the world, John, or something like that? Or Yeah, it's, it's really terrific. And actually, Robert, he had a great quote um, about his race in Monaco where you know he went and ran basically the whole race by himself. He said, it might sound strange, but Monaco running by myself was the biggest highlight of the year. I was mentally active the entire race, going through my race plan the whole time and executing exactly how I envisioned it. And he ran like unofficially a 44.6, which, you know, his personal best is 44.63. So he was basically right there. Uh, so that was that was really cool. But yeah, it's incredible that he moved down in distance once he got to Texas running. But essentially, Edric Florial said in the article, you know, 
I was looking his splits, like the way he was running these races, his, he was closing way too fast and for what he should have been capable of, like he could just tell he had this in, incredible natural speed and obviously yeah, it like, showed. If, yeah, if you got out the first two, he wasn't running the first 200 hard, basically is what he said in his 400s because he was still running 400s. Like in 2016, he ran a 47.64 400. Also ran 148.16. Now in 2017, he slowed down the 800, ran 150. And then 2018, 149. So it's kind of stagnated in the 800. And you do see that, I mean, Team Phenoms, a lot of guys sort of stagnate in the 800. It's a hard event to improve on. But 355 in the 1500 in 2017. So he's, he's a, you know, a 413 miler who runs 44 in the quarter. Um, Move him up to the, forget the 800, move him up to the 15. Imagine in a tactical, in a tactical 1500, he'd blow everybody away. (laughs) I just think that it's a real testament to Floreal. I, you know, I've never spent any time with him personally, but I respect the results he's been getting. And I think some of these top coaches just are at another level compared to other people. I mean, Dan Paff, who was my brother's assistant when he ran his fifth year at the University of Texas is, super everyone respects him because he can coach all the events but some people they just see stuff and they realize it like yeah this guy's great at the 800 and he was running the 400 but he's like you know you wouldn't expect this guy to be running 44 63 um and they've shut a season down so he will not be at worlds because foriel's got a long-term plan he wants him to do 2020 olympics and he's planning on him going pro next year so he's not afraid to lose them to the pro ranks Actually, maybe, although john conspiracy theory of the week he shuts him down this year so he doesn't medal at worlds and go pro now that's what Dave Smith should have done with Sinclair Johnson. Yep. Uh, yeah, it's interesting. Sinclair Johnson, I mean, they weren't even thinking of running USAs, and then Sinclair ends up running USAs. She gets fourth, and she turns pro. So interesting what if there. Also, Jonathan Jones, I'm very impressed. You know, he did all this while winning a few Super Bowls with the New England Patriots as a cornerback. Uh, that's reference for the all the nerds who know the Patriots' backup cornerbacks. But... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, very stuff, impressive stuff. And he will probably, I mean, he'll be the favorite in the 400 at, US, at uh, the NCAA level next year, I think. I don't know. I, I guess I have to look. He was only fourth this year, so maybe there are some guys in front of him who are coming back. But you would have to think running 44-6 at age 20, he would he'd be right up there. Well, John, do we have anything else to talk about? We didn't really talk about the Leadville 100. Well, I had an option for a guest this week. Weldon said he wanted to do interviews. I wanted to focus on you and myself. Gonna turn this into just my own podcast once we get rid of you for being a doping apologist. But um, no, uh, Steel Town Runner, who's helped us a lot in our Hoka Oni Oni exploration of the Ultra Scene, offered to be a guest, but I didn't put him on. But we did have the Leadville 100, where a 46 year old Magdalena Louis Boulay won, and 49 year old, oh, I don't think that's right, 49. I think Ryan Smith is 40. There's a typo on the homepage. 40 year old Ryan Smith won. First typo ever on the Let's Run homepage. So. Um, but I was looking at the results there. Like, I mean, Jared Hazen, who's in the Kokono Cowboys, he, you know, he trades with Jared. He was a runner up at Western States this year. Um, and uh, so he went out in record pace, but he only made it like he wanted to break. I think it's a lot of these, there's not a lot of depth in these races. So right. like, I, want, I want to break the course record. But 30 miles in, he was done. Like, no way. But, you know, there, there was apparently somebody else who was like in the lead at 70 miles and dropped out. I don't know if there was a men's or women's race. And then. You know, like if you look at like first place, it's sixteen thirty three in the men's side. Then second place is seventeen fifty six. So he wins by like, you know, an, an hour twenty three, which is you know, I guess it's a long race. But the course record is fifteen forty two. So <laughs> just a huge discrepancy there. So that's all I have about the ultra scene today. 
Very good. Well, I think that about wraps it up, Robert. You know, it's great. I think we we made it what an hour and a half. No Weldon. Yeah. Do we do we do this every week? John, this is the plan. We fire Weldon and we use that money for my weekly drug test. Oh, I didn't plug the sponsors though. And that was really bad. Should have done it early to raise the go money. Go back in time. It, oh, you said you didn't want to add in the in, extra audio. You could go Maybe back I can in time. Figure it out. Insert we'll it see. start. Folks, if you hear if you hear it, that means I learned how to do it. We want to thank the sponsor of the show, the Let's Run.com shoe site. Go to let'srun.com slash shoes and buy your next shoes. Remember, shoes self-destruct like every few months. You have to buy a new pair. You might as well go to our website. We have the reviews and we also have the best prices. So if you already have a shoe, you can do it. You'll destroy your local running store, but hey, we'll make money in the process. So that does it for this week's podcast. Thanks for listening. We will have one confession to make, folks. We're not going to be covering the Paris Diamond League. There will be no recap this weekend. We apologize. I think we'll write a preview, but we will not be recapping it. Weldon's on vacation. I'm going to be on vacation. And John, I think, is going to be on vacation as well. So just warning you, you'll have to live by seeing the results or going to the IWF page to get the recap. But anyway, guys, see you guys next week.